With 40 years of experience, thousands of investors, a proven track record, and more than $3 billion in assets under management, Reef provides exceptional commercial real estate investment offerings at the click of a button. Visit us at rreaf.com backslash investor. We own and operate all our properties, and that's important because we have skin in the game. Unlike the middleman, you can call or visit us anytime. Hedge market volatility with our lucrative offerings, open to accredited investors only. Visit rreaf.com backslash investor. Well, Mitch Horowitz is the vice president and executive editor at Penguin Random House, and he's also a Penn Award-winning historian and author of Occult America and One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life. And we're thrilled to have Mitch back on Big Blend Radio today to talk about the Napoleon Hill book, How to Own Your Own Mind. It was first published in 1941, and it got lost in the shuffle due to the onset of World War II, but it was recently discovered in the vaults of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. It's a 20-year study of classic American success stories, and it's now republished by Tartra Perigi for a new generation, our generation now. Uh, Also, you can keep up with Mitch. Uh, Go to MitchHorowitz.com. He's also on Twitter, the same name. And, of course, you can get the book anywhere, uh, all on all of the Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, any of your bookstores. So check it out. Mitch, it's good to have you back. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you know, last time you were on the show, you were talking about The Path to Personal Power, which was also a Napoleon Hill book. How many more of these books are hidden in those vaults? (laughs) We're loving this. (laughs) Well, there's a total of four that have been rediscovered. He was very prolific, and as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, he wrote this series of books, which he called the Mental Dynamite series, in 1941, just before the U.S. entry into the Second World War. And when the U.S. entered the war, the economy changed overnight. There was paper rationing, transportation was rerouted, production was rerouted to the munitions industry and things to serve. Uh, American troops, and um, these books never got published, and uh, mm. so, so it remained for the next generation, and they were just recently rediscovered. So these are things that have actually never seen the light of day before. But the lessons are still really important in, in these books, and I, I think what's so interesting about this one, How to Own Your Own Mind, um, just even the beginning getting into these conversations and interviews he had, uh, Napoleon Hill with Andrew Carnegie, it just... And then his thoughts afterwards, just talking about where they were in the country at that period and how they were discussing the future and the importance of um, actually owning your own mind and uh, organized thought and um, actually thinking before we do things. It, to me, it was really, really fascinating because they also seem to have some concerns, true concerns about the growth of America. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. They, uh, uh, Napoleon Hill was writing in really the wake of the Great Depression. America had emerged from the Depression. Things were still considered sketchy. And when he wrote Think and Grow Rich in 1937, really the country was still, we were still a New Deal nation. We were still just coming out of the Great Depression. And Hill's interest was in kind of trying to encourage people to intelligently take risks, to be intelligently mm-hmm. persistent, to use their minds in an entrepreneurial way. And he was very practical about it. You know, sometimes people think, 
oh, gee, is you know, he just telling you to uh, engage strictly in visualization and affirmation and everything will be fine? And he was actually doing that and a whole lot more. He was very specific mm-hmm. about organized planning and accurate thinking and where to get sources of information from. You know, he wanted people to come up with business ideas that were road testable, that were sturdy, that were realistic. And he wanted people to be nonconformist in a certain way. He felt very strongly that you should never just rely upon the opinions of other people or things that you heard or things that your Uncle Mike might say, but rather, and this is as true today as it was then, in fact, in some ways more so because there's so much sketchy information online, he wanted people to really be very careful and very applied in their process of evaluating their sources. You know, where were they getting this information from? And he discouraged idle talk. You know, he wanted people to make concrete plans and to find colleagues Mm -hmm. and to find sort of a support group. He called it a mastermind group to Mm -hmm. meet with at regular intervals, to test out ideas, to receive intelligent, constructive criticism, but never to confuse that with just a random discussion around the Thanksgiving table, for example, because his attitude was that opinions are the cheapest commodity on earth. Everyone has them, and they're usually, (laughs) in, in most cases, very uninformed. And he didn't want people to get either misinformation or to have their equilibrium upset by sharing their plans for a business or a career or just some personal dream with somebody who, quite frankly, might not know what they're talking about. So he was he was very uh, careful to caution people that you shouldn't engage yeah. in idle talk with friends, coworkers, family members. You know, really know your sources. Get your information straight. And that's part of what owning your own mind is about. And also the path of persistence. I thought that was one of the fascinating sides of the book. In fact, I'm writing a whole article in a different magazine. It, they, I started scribbling notes, and I, as soon as I was reading this, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to do this whole thing on the inventors of our country. And Because like, it was really, uh, yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. I think that we get to this point of um, we can get whiny if things don't go our way. And they really talk a lot about how, you know, when things aren't working, that's actually when something great can happen. And sometimes people will quit just as that door is about to open uh, you know, for success in, in whatever you're, you're seeking, whether yes, it's inventing it's, something or not. Yeah, it's a very interesting process. You know, uh, Hill wrote a lot about the importance of persistence, and he did talk a lot about that phenomenon that you just identified where we are sometimes apt to quit just before encountering some kind of a breakthrough. I have a book out called The Miracle of a Definite Chief Aim, which is based on his teachings, mm-hmm. and I write about the importance of intelligent persistence. I mean, the truth is there are periods in life where we may have to change plans or we may have to fundamentally rethink something. But Hill always cautioned that we mustn't confuse failure with a temporary setback. The temporary setbacks are as natural as the cycles of night and day, and they're going to happen, and they're going to happen frequently. But we shouldn't ever get into that space where we think of a temporary setback as a defeat. And it's very important to be intelligently persistent and to ask oneself, you know, what am I going here? You know, what am I actually going for here? Um, am I am I uh, conflating money with success, for example? And in some cases, that's a perfectly legitimate and necessary thing. But in other cases, for an artist uh, or for someone else who's doing a project that can't quite be quantified in the traditional ways, uh, money and financial reward may not be 
the lead factor, and in fact, that if if it's made into the lead factor, may be very morale sapping and very depleting. There are all kinds of ways one has to look at a project mm-hmm. and say, where are my green lights? How am I measuring this? Am I getting places? Is this proving to be a worthy act of self-expression. There are other cases where money is exactly the measure that may be necessary. Uh, Sometimes it's a mixture of things. But he wanted you to demonstrate a real, dogged, unusually firm persistence, acknowledging that, yes, there are some times where conditions make a change absolutely necessary. But before getting to that place, he really wanted people to be very, very careful that they weren't giving up at a time when it could be that a cycle of business or just a cycle of human events was a right of poised to come their way. And I've seen that happen. I have seen that happen in the lives of authors, in the lives of actors, in the lives of artists. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are my examples primarily because those are the people that I hang around with and I have an opportunity to observe up close. But I really have seen people not just getting some one in a million lucky break or winning the lottery in some metaphorical way, but rather they have been consistent in whatever they were proffering, whatever they were producing, and at some point the culture wanted it. There's a mysterious law of cycles. This is something I write about in The the Miracle of a Definite Chief Aim. There's a a law of cycles Mm -hmm. that, that can come around very, very surprisingly and can lift your fortunes at a very unexpected moment, not because it's chance, but because you've been consistent. You've planted your flag. You've stood your ground. And life changes. Conditions change. You know, I have a friend, very successful audio publisher, who said to me, I never take no for an answer because sometimes conditions can change and then the answer will change. And we must remember that. You know, there's a condition that may be in place that will be gone next week or sometime in the future, uh, favorable or unfavorable. So we have to keep in mind that uh, life is like nature. Cycles change, seasons change, things rotate. And if we're consistent, there's a likelihood, and and what we're doing is of quality, there's a likelihood that uh, those rotations will, will come our way. It's really true. I mean, I look at just even on the publishing and going from a, you know, a print magazine to being completely digital and audio and all of these things. And, you know, and reading in the beginning of the book, too, where they talk about the importance of what is the media doing? What are you producing? Mm. Is it just yeah. sheer entertainment without the educational side? And I was jumping up and down. I actually started reading this in a, in a medical office. I was taking a friend to, to a doctor, and I'm like reading this, and I was like, I wanted to like pinch everybody sitting there and go yeah, read this sure. instead of that that other you know tabloid. <laughs> this is far more yeah, important yeah. for you. You know, and it's it's exciting. You know, when you talk about the the cycles, it really is about lasting and outlasting them. And it's just like the ocean waves, you know. One of my favorite quotes in the book is, every adversity brings with it a seed of equivalent benefit. That's from Andrew Carnegie. And I really love these conversations between the two of them because I really believe, um, and actually if you just look at this book even being published and these four books being published, that just proves it right there that things – eventually will get their way. (laughs) It is interesting. I mean, Napoleon Hill has far more readers today than he did during his lifetime. And that's not just a matter Mm -hmm. of population, you know, explosion. Um, You know, I would say per, per, per capita, he has a a, a wider readership, a wider reach. Uh, It's rare Mm -hmm. that you see a writer who attains greater popularity after his lifetime than during it. 
uh, especially in nonfiction, but he is he is one of those cases. And even though the technology has changed and so on, his insights into human nature have a timelessness. And I've been mm-hmm. I've been quite thrilled to sit back and 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 watch over the past say. 15 years or so, how mm-hmm. his audience has grown. At one time, he was kind of a slightly musty name on a backlist somewhere, and people had heard of him, and they had heard of Think and Grow Rich, at least people who were into motivational philosophy. But today, mm-hmm. the number of people I see reading Think and Grow Rich is remarkable. I mean, I find that it's being read by doctors, by artists, by professionals, by entrepreneurs, by office workers. You know, it's, it's, it's a remarkable range of people that I've, I've run into reading the book. Have do you ever think about um taking this and getting it into kids edu- like literature somehow getting this uh for the youth? I know we oh, look that's at remarkable. I know that yeah. I I think that's it would be so important. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about writing a think and grow rich for young people now that you mentioned it actually. That's uh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. that, Yeah, that's a, that's a very prescient comment. I I was just actually speaking with a colleague at the Napoleon Hill Foundation no more than a few weeks ago about the possibility of writing a think and grow rich for young people i i really would like to see these lessons in the hands of of young people because there is a ethic of nonconformity in hill's work mm-hmm. that i really like very much uh, there is an ethic of persistence uh, that i like uh there is an encouragement towards dreaming and making plans but also following through with organized thinking mm-hmm. accurate thinking writing out your plans, taking some sort of action, however small, in the here and now to take a step towards your plan, even if it's just a very small step. He was very action-oriented. He believed in the agencies of the mind and in the agencies of bone and muscle. And Mm -hmm. and the values in the book really are very good values. He also talks a lot about ethical success and golden rule values, and and that's one of my favorite parts of, of his work. I think he has like this incredible integrity for what he does. You know, it's like I'm not going to give you an extra word if it doesn't make sense on the page. You know, it's like I'm going to give you these tools. It's up to you to take ownership of them and utilize them. And yep. you know, it is, I like I like talking about this because it's true. It's not just you know the, you know just wishing and and having a nice vision. Oh, you know, I see myself with thousands and millions of dollars. It goes far beyond that. But they also say if that's your goal. This is how to do it. You know what I mean? Here's, yeah. here's your tool to build it. So a lot of people would be surprised. Yeah, if a person hasn't read Think and Grow Rich, he or she might be surprised by what's in the book. You know, sometimes people expect that it's strictly a visualization program because of the title. And while that is one component of it, it's it's really a very practical blood and sweat program as well, where you sit down and you make plans and you drop ideas and you really vet things and learn how to vet things. And again, some of the language would strike us today, of course, as old-fashioned and the technology has changed, but the insights into human nature and I would say the insights into how to concretize plans have remained essentially the same. And people would be surprised at at what's in the book if they approach it thinking that it's strictly a, a visualization program. You know, also talking about the, you know, on the vision side, they talk about creativity, which I think is so crucial right now. Um, you know, people are getting scared of what's going to happen in in the future. You know, is yeah. artificial, in, artificial intelligence going to take us over? Are robots going to take jobs away? And, you know, I I encourage everybody to get, you know, how to own your own mind if you have those fears, because if you own your own mind and you work with that creative vision, uh, whether it's, 
you know, developing something better than what's already out there. They talk about like two different visions, you know, uh, synthetic versus creative imagination. Are you the very first person to create pizza or are you the person that's going to add a new topping and, and, you know, have a bestseller of of pizza, you know? So they have that in there. But I think right now, I think we're creativity is what's going to fix the problems we have in in the world, whether it's energy going to to solar and creating uh, new ways to, uh, you know, fly around the world, uh, communication, you know, even looking at what's going on with climate change. I think creativity, that's the solution. Well, you know, Hill writes about imagination, and it's funny, people use the term imagination in different ways. Some people use it meaning to daydream. Some people use it meaning to come up with concrete ideas, to sort of envision things. And what Hill sees imagination as is kind of a bridge that connects knowledge with ideas. He was Mm -hmm. very adamant that you need to accumulate a huge amount of knowledge and background ideas pertaining to whatever field or profession or craft you want to go into. And once you you have attained a great deal of knowledge, education, background information from legitimate and worthy sources, imagination then serves as a bridge that connects all of that data, all of that information mm-hmm. with ideas, with big ideas, you know, and his feeling is that imagination is the bridge in a way. It creates an equation between data and your vision and that once you have done your homework so to speak then your imagination can really go to work saying you know i want to start uh, a tutoring business or a dog grooming business Mm -hmm. or break into a certain field or be a master craftsman or a master artist you know in some way well whatever your ideas are whatever you're picturing in your mind's eye imagination is the bridge you're going to walk there is no better time than the present to explore the lucrative commercial real estate offerings from reef visit rreaf.com backslash investor featured on fox news wall street journal yahoo finance and many more we're not a crowdfunding site we own and operate all our properties Come see why thousands of individual investors have decided to trust Reef with their real estate investments. Call us today with any questions. Hedge market volatility with Reef. Open to accredited investors only. Visit rreaf.com backslash investor. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, get up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost on the Gambit DC app, online, or at any Gambit DC retail location throughout the district. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. Over to connect all the knowledge that you've amassed with whatever it is that you want to express in the world. So he encourages visioning. He encourages mental picturizing. But mm. for, for it to really be worthwhile, for it to really be an exercise that's going to actualize something, you have to put in a great deal of background work. You know, Albert Einstein is always quoted as saying something to the effect of imagination being more important than knowledge. But how much knowledge must we possess before yeah. that formula becomes true? You know, and that, that's Hill's challenge, that you have to have so much knowledge so that your imagination has something that, it, that, it, that, 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 that serves as its, as its raw fuel, so to speak. Hmm. The one thing, too, in this book is I think all business leaders 
or anybody in a management position should read this, especially listening to, well, as a reading, you know, Andrew Carnegie's side of things, talking about how, you know, they get successful. And then you get to, you get into that zone where, okay, you've, you've built your, your dream, you've, you've achieved success, and then mm-hmm. things can start crumbling. And he talks about the motivation part. I think he came up with the first, he was the first guy to come up, like, this is a, how you do a real bonus. <laughs> you know what I mean? To uh-huh, get people uh-huh. to still be out there. If you're in sales, or, you know, this is also really helpful about, you know, how to look at your destiny. What are you just selling one thing or what are you selling? It, it goes yes. beyond that. So there's confidence, there's motivation, but there's true leadership lessons in this uh, for, for people in, in the manager, managerial position. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Hill's work has so much value for people who are in sales, which is just one of the toughest jobs in America. And I view salesmen. Mm-hmm. In some regards, as the unsung heroes of our economy, because they have a really, really tough job to do, and it's it's a very strict numbers-based job. Hill talks about leadership in whatever your field is as coming from initiative. That he he equates initiative and leadership. That people who do what needs being done without being told, without being asked to, who often see it in advance before others do that is that is leadership it's 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 a simple but demanding concept and he says if you're looking to be a leader in whatever field that you're in equate that with initiative take initiative as a constant and that amounts to leadership uh he also talks about the importance of as you were saying being very specific and very aware of what you're selling, not diluting your focus, and also not diluting your energies, realizing that Mm -hmm. while it's so important to be educated about your field, you don't have to take responsibility for knowing everything. You can go to legitimate sources to learn things for you or distill knowledge for you or to to add some quality, sometimes paying for it, uh, to your activities that you might not be able to do yourself that's a very very legitimate thing you know mm-hmm. he always pointed out that uh, henry ford may not have been able to build an engine but he would hire people who could build an engine and he was he was adamant that there were many aspects of his job that he didn't know how to do and didn't need to know how to do in so far as he was capable of hiring people to do it. He was capable of paying for people to do it. And there are different approaches to that. You know, uh, uh, According to some historians, Napoleon liked to brag that he could do everything himself. You know, he could manufacture munitions. Right. He could cook for an army. He could you know, draw up battle plans, carry them out, figure out what to do when they failed, and so forth and so on. And that's a very, very legitimate approach. But if you find yourself with your back against the wall and you don't know how to do something – Find someone who does. Pay for it if necessary. It's, you know, he'll always noted that it was perfectly legitimate and to be expected that you should pay for knowledge sometimes. He also talks about the importance of forming yourself into a mastermind group. This is especially important yeah. for salesmen. If you're in a mastermind group, which is really a support group, it's just a group of somewhere between two and seven people with whom you meet at regular intervals to talk about plans and ideas, to support one another, it's the perfect atmosphere in which to get support, get encouragement, get concrete advice, and sort of heighten all your intellectual faculties together because it's a self-selected group of people who are getting together with the mutual understanding that they're going to support one another's goals, they have similar values, they are all committed to the idea of self-support, mutual aid. You're not 
just randomly looking for people's advice or people's opinions, but you have within this mastermind group a regularly convening support group that can be there to help you. In fact, I have a meeting with my mastermind group today at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. We do it every Tuesday (laughs) morning. Um, So that's something where you can help your morale and give yourself a sense of direction when your, your sense of purpose is flagging. You know, and and I, the mastermind alliance I think is so important in life. You and it's not just go, hey, you, you, you. It's it. There's, you have to work on that too to get to yes. know each other. If you know, so it has to that integrity has to be in there as well. And you know, it's interesting because you look at all these Facebook groups, all these people joining together, whether it's over health or plants or whatever it is. It they they do turn into like these support groups. Some some do it just on, hey, I'm going on a diet. Come with me. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. So there's, you see, kind of like a modern day version of that. You know, editing these books. What was it like to sit down and and just, you know, did you? I mean, number one, what did the manuscripts look like? Did you get to see what they they're like out of the vault? Uh, I didn't, I I didn't see physically what they were like coming out of the vault because I received them in a somewhat more refined version, but it was still fairly rough material. And it's exciting to feel that you're looking at words that Napoleon Hill wrote that haven't yeah. been seen by anybody for generations. You know, that was, that was exciting. Well, Napoleon Hill has mm. been a big force in my life, so any material yeah. that I read from him is, is exciting. I, I've been reading him since 2005, but I really feel like I often tell people I started reading him in 2005, but it was only starting in maybe around 2013 that I felt I started to read him in a way that really made a difference because when you go into Hill's work, and I tell this to everybody, you have to do the exercises as if your life depends on it. This Mm -hmm. isn't stuff that you can skim or say, yeah, that's familiar to me, I know that, I get it. You have to go in and very methodically try to strip away your prejudices or your past experiences or your feelings that this is for beginners and I'm no longer a beginner. Throw out all those preconceptions and just give yourself over to it. You know, Do the exercises as if you're doing them for the very first time and you'll discover new things and you'll get so much more out of it. It's actually interesting, this one, um, how to own your own mind. I was going through some of it, and then some of it, I was like, well, I don't agree with this, you know. Right. I'm like, now we can see today, this didn't work. You know, you guys did this back then. but And then, you know, I had to go back, and, and I was like, just put it down, go back to it. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I get it now. And and the book is kind of tattered now. I, I tend to use books. <laughs> That's a good sign. I'm sorry, I know you're a publisher, but <laughs> – yeah. It is. It is one of those books that you're gonna you're gonna go back to, and um, both of them, the path to personal power and how to own your mind, your own mind. Those two books to me are are really, they're they're everybody needs to have them, and it's something that you utilize. And if you read it every single day and just start trying to do the exercises, it will start to creep into your system. And I find it like a it gives you a backbone and it gives you a confidence when you're working on something and not just dr- daydreaming about it, and you start to put you know here's the plan and then you take that step into the plan then you build a confidence even if something goes wrong you know you've already got this this plan that you can go back to and you can change the plan if you need to according to what's going on in the world so i think it gives people a confidence to move forward and it encourages you to write your plan down to write down your definite Mm -hmm. chief aim and there's energy in these things that people often overlook Writing down a plan is very important. In a certain sense, it's the first step to concretizing it in the world. It's the first 
physical step of actualization, and there's a commitment in it. It's almost like devising a contract, and we underestimate the importance of pledges and contracts in these times, mm-hmm. especially when everything seems like a little pixelated, glowing light on a screen that can just vanish and be gone. It never really vanishes, but it gives us that misimpression. The truth is, a written plan, something that you pledge to, that you set down on paper, that you sign your name to, is has a particular value today, and I think we've lost sight of that value. It holds you to something. It gives you a point of reference. It forces you in a way mm-hmm. to own up to whether you've abided by something. Write down your plans. Write down your definite chief aim. And write down lots of notes while you're trying to figure out what your definite chief aim is. There's something exquisitely private and experimental about the whole thing, too. People should enjoy the process. You know, coming to grips with what you really want out of life, making one statement of a definite, impassioned commitment is actually a rarity. Mm. We talk about things in our heads and sometimes with other people that we want all the time. But what would we be willing to stake our whole lives on? What do we want more than anything else without worrying about how it sounds to somebody? This is your process, and it's a process of self-discovery and really self-disclosure. There are things we don't like to disclose to ourselves because we think that they don't seem flattering or don't seem appropriate in some way. But you're doing this for yourself. This is, again, exquisitely private, and you should enjoy the process. It should be a process Mm -hmm. of real self-disclosure, of real intimacy. Sit down and write notes to yourself. Determine what you want in life more than anything else. And when you come to a point where you feel you've been completely honest and practical, because I think an authentic aim is also something that should be actionable, something that's real, something that's concrete, uh, write it down. Write it down and sign your name to Mm -hmm. it. That's the first step in this entire process, actually. It's it's a huge step, and I think it's like going back to the youth. I think it's really important. We look at what's going on in regards to mental health across our country. And, yeah. you know, when you start getting into this, you start to realize, like, how many people are wrapped up in drama because of living day-to-day without taking these action steps towards their yes. life. Yes, that's a great and insight. And I really yeah. believe, like, these kinds of things give people that confidence to take steps to actually live and yes. thrive in life, not be a bystander and just keep getting chucked around. I feel like sometimes you know, you're born and you're thrown out in traffic and you just keep getting pushed around, and it's, it's time to stand up and, and not be pushed around and push your own thing around. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, and that's, what that's I, a wonderful insight. That's so important. Yeah. yeah, I think an absence of personal agency, feeling a lack of personal agency, is at the back of a lot of what we call anxiety and depression today. Not all of it, not all of it, but 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 some in some great measure, the 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 sense of de- de- depletion or defeat or anxiousness that um, some people feel going through their day to day lives. Some of that stems directly from not acting. Mm-hmm. with personal vigor and direction and agency. That absence can be very keenly felt as a sense of depression and anxiety. Yeah, that's true. And then and then that spirals into some negative ways, you know, and not happiness. Yes. And that's it. I think when people start getting nervous about their country, whether it's political or not, um, you know, just in general, we're all looking at different issues. If you take control of your own life and what you're doing, then that breeds out. And if everybody did that, it, things would be a little bit smoother, I think. That's, that's I, what I agree. I, I think. 
and th- and that uh-huh. expression of control can be involved can grow from very small steps, very modest steps. Uh, it doesn't have to be something big and dramatic, and it doesn't have to be something that you talk to other people about. It can be something private. It can also be something as simple as separating from a group of gossipy coworkers. You know, because right. Hill talks about how depleting gossip is, how it runs exactly counter to accurate thinking and organized thinking. It's not only ethically wrong, but it's often a means of receiving and spreading misinformation. Get away from gossip. Get away from rumor. Get away from people who traffic in gossip and rumor and tale-telling. It's, it's a smog. Uh, it kills mm-hmm. out one's sense of ambition. It kills out one's sense of nobility. It hurts other people, and it hurts us commensurately because we're participating in a cycle of humiliating mm. other people, spreading misinformation, uh, getting accustomed in our own lives to inaccurate thinking, to listening to and spreading opinions that might be wrong, which in a sense de- deplete our own sense of ability because eventually those same wrong opinions will get taken to heart by us about a project or something that we feel strongly about. So taking mm. control can be a private step. It can be a seemingly small outer step, but it can be seismically important. And he always talked about, speaking of owning your own mind, one of the most important steps, perhaps a first step, is is getting away from and no longer participating in gossip and rumors. That's a that's a huge personal step. Yeah. So tabloids stop it. <laughs> it's true. It's really really. One can true. walk I, by it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's all over really social media. Choice. It's the language of social media, and so that could be right, a huge step for people. Right, and that's something we we can take a you know a, it's a it's participating in choice and and yep. making decisions i'm not going to do that holding yourself to a promise and then going yep. from there it's like those small steps you're talking about it changes everything when you look at like, the, the stuff yeah. going on in social media that can really i mean words can harm people they really can Without you have question. no idea what's going on in people's life and i watch things and i go wow look at that look how you know i've made a personal promise like if everything i do it either entertains educates or inspires that's it. Yeah. And every time yeah, I go to post something, it's like, is that gonna, is that gonna hurt somebody? Is it? What yeah. is? What am I trying to do? Am I just posting? What am I doing? You know. So yeah. The language decisions. of social media is very often the language of sarcasm. There's a great deal of uh, causticness, sarcasm, humor at the expense of other people, humiliation of other people on social media. And if we can watch out for that, it can just be a mm-hmm. huge step because sarcasm was never meant to be <laughs> the everyday language of, of, of social space. And if mm-hmm. that were the language of our day-to-day lives, person-to-person in schools, in offices, in workplaces, it would, be, it would be desperate. It would just be a desperate situation because sarcasm is anger and it's implicitly a put-down. And it, it has its place you know, in terms of humor, but it was never meant to be this constant, common tongue, which it's become over the internet. And we should watch out for that. We can always think twice before taking the opportunity to be sarcastic or to participate in a kind of pile-on. You know, the opportunities present themselves on Twitter, Facebook, elsewhere all the time. And uh, it can be a very powerful choice. People can be very surprised if they just try it for a few hours and see what the effect is in their lives. 
Absolutely. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Now, okay, Likewise. now there's two other books out there. Is there as have I missed one? Um are these other two coming <laughs> up? What's what's happening and and what's coming out of the vault? <laughs> oh, well, thank you. One can always you can find everything by just going to my website mitchhorowitz.com. If you throw my name into Google, you'll have no problem okay. finding me. You can write to me there. Um I always get back to people and uh we're talking about Napoleon Hill's books, Path to Personal Power and How to Own Your Own Mind. I also have a new book out about the ideas of Napoleon Hill called The Miracle of a Definite Chief Aim. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, when you get to writing Think and Grow Rich for Kids, let us know. I think that's right going to be excellent. I, I love be that. I love that. Thank well, you. Thank you so much, everyone. Again, MitchHorowitz.com and go get How to Own Your Own Mind by Napoleon Hill. You take care. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Totally. There is no better time than the present to explore the lucrative commercial real estate offerings from Reef. Visit rreaf.com backslash investor. Featured on Fox News, Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and many more. We're not a crowdfunding site. We own and operate all our properties. Come see why thousands of individual investors have decided to trust Reef with their real estate investments. Call us today with any questions. Hedge market volatility with Reef. Open to accredited investors only. Visit rreaf.com backslash investor.